This morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 37. Mark 13, verses 1 through 37. And the title of this sermon is Awake and Watching. Well, I'm typically a pretty cautious person, um, not taking a whole lot of risks, but Ross can tell you, uh, when I get on skis, a lot of that inhibition goes right out the window. Uh, But I remember one time when I was younger, as a little kid, staring over the ledge of a black diamond and just launching myself off. My immediate thought was, This is insane. I can't believe I'm trying this. Well, that's how I feel about today's message. Uh, This is by far the hardest text in all of Mark. Uh, There are many differing viewpoints on this text, and I'm about to tackle 37 verses in one sermon. This is insane. I can't believe I'm trying this. So, here we go. Having already heard the text read by Aaron, uh, I want to start with some base comments of where I'm coming from and where I'm not. Uh, Christians and even secular people love to talk about the end times. How, How many of you guys are familiar with the Left Behind series? Yeah, most of you. Um, well, if you're not familiar, the Left Behind series was 16 books seven of which hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list from 1995 to 2007. Uh, I actually read all of them at a time in life that I really wasn't that into reading. Um, So they captivated me. In 1998, the first four books in the series simultaneously held positions one through four on the New York Times bestseller list. Pretty amazing. Uh, As of 2016, which is the most uh, up-to-date info I could find, the series had sold just over 80 million copies. So, people are into talking and thinking and reading about the end times. But, I'm afraid that too often we take things like the Left Behind series and put on those lenses to read texts like Mark 13. Or we put on the lenses of current events in the news and try to read Mark 13 through those lenses to try to kind of make sense of what we're seeing going on around us in the present. Today, I want to try to offer a different set of lenses, specifically the lenses of the Old Testament. I believe those are the lenses through which we should understand much of the language that Jesus uses here in Mark 13. At the outset, I know, just want to acknowledge this up front, there's three different groups of people in the room today. Some of you will hear this and think, that's fascinating. I've never seen that in this text before. That makes so much sense. Others of you might say, Yeah, that's really different. Uh, I'm not sure if I can buy that. I just don't follow you there. And others will say, "Eh, whatever, I'm hungry. Let's get to lunch. (laughs) I I get it. But 
What I want to encourage us to do is to engage the text, not our traditions or what we've always thought. A key rule of hermeneutics or the study of interpretation is this. A text can't mean today what it didn't mean then. I'll repeat that because it's important. A text can't mean today what it didn't mean then. So, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the original audience. It's easy to read a text like this and think, I wonder what this text says about Afghanistan. Is that what this text is about? Are there events of the last year pointing to what Jesus is talking about here? Understand this. Reading scripture and wanting to understand how it applies to today is a good thing. But before we do that, we must understand its original meaning. What did it mean for the original hearers? It can't mean something different for us today. A text can't mean today what it didn't mean then. Okay. With all of that in mind, I want to suggest that a good chunk of this text isn't about the end times. And then, some of it is. After a lot of study, it seems to me that there's three parts to this text. Number one, things that have already happened in history. Two, things that have already happened and point to the end times. And then three, things that will happen at Jesus' second coming. And I want to be abundantly clear here. I do believe in the literal second coming of Christ. That's a core hope of the Christian worldview, that Jesus will come again for his people. I believe that the events of this text, which have already happened in history, point to that day when Jesus will come again. And just to be clear, uh, none of these are Drew's original thoughts. Uh, I've read a ton of books and articles and sermons on this text over the last several weeks, trying to make sense of all of this. And here are, are five things that I want to set out to kind of give a bit of a foundation to what I'm saying before we dive into the actual text. Here's why I think up front that most of these verses are speaking to AD 70 in the destruction of the temple. Number one, we have to connect, and I want to encourage you to, to have your Bibles open to Mark 13, follow along. We have to connect verse 2 and verse 4 together. Uh, in verse 2, what are they talking about? They're talking about the temple. Jesus says it's going to be destroyed. And in verse 4, the disciples are asking, when's that going to happen? So that's point one. Second, there are geographical signposts that point to a specific location in time. Jesus' call in verse 14, he says, flee to the mountains. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us today on a global scale. It makes a ton of sense 
to Christians living in Jerusalem during the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. That, in fact, is what the Christians of that time did. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. So, connect verse 2 and verse 4. Also see the geographical signpost. And then third, verse 32. Jesus seems to kind of shift gears and make a hard transition using the phrase, that day, transitioning to a full discussion of eschatology, or or the end times. In the parallel text of Matthew 24, verse 3, it says this. It says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You see that? The disciples seemed to think that those two events were one and the same. The destruction of the temple and your coming and the end of the age. Jesus wants to actually separate the two and show the disciples that they're not simultaneous. More on that later. But verse 32 seems to be a hard transition. Fourth, verse 32 again. Jesus says, and I do believe that he's talking about the end times here. Verse 32, Jesus says, no one knows when it's coming, right? Prior to this, Jesus has given all sorts of clues so that they can know when the destruction of the temple's coming. By the time it happened, they were actually ready for it, ready to run for the hills. But... When talking about his second coming, Jesus says, no one knows. Fifth and finally, verse 30, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So Jesus clearly seems to be talking about the things that happened within 40 years of his death. That generation was still alive when the temple fell in A.D. 70. Okay, one more. Let's just call it a key to understanding this text. It seems as if when when Jesus uses the phrase, and pay close attention here, when Jesus uses the phrase, these things, he seems to be referring to A.D. 70 and the destruction of the temple. But... When he uses that day, he's referring to his second coming. Clear as mud? Okay, take a deep breath. Now, let's sprint through the text at a high level. Remember, Jesus and his disciples have been in the temple now for a whole day. And the text begins with them leaving the temple. That's the setting. And as they're walking out, one of his disciples, who knows, maybe just trying to make conversation, says, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And whoever said that wasn't wrong. (laughs) The temple, according to John chapter 2, verse 20, had taken 46 years to build. Regardless, This disciple probably wasn't expecting Jesus' response. He says, do you see 
these great buildings, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Within 40 years, in AD 70, Jesus' words were proved to be completely true. Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, tells us that when Titus first conquered Jerusalem, he actually ordered the temple to be preserved because it was beautiful and it was full of gold. It's valuable. But his soldiers actually started a fire that actually gutted the entire building. And in response, Titus ordered the whole city and temple to be razed to the ground. As with today, this led to looters who literally took apart the stones of the building looking for scraps of gold. Jesus knew what he was talking about. But the disciples were probably absolutely shell-shocked at Jesus' response. Remember, this was the center of Jewish religious life, the temple. And Jesus is saying, guys, it's going to be in rubble. So, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives. That's why this whole section is known as the Olivet Discourse. They're, they're up there on the Mount of Olives. They're looking down on the temple. You can kind of see the disciples' wheels spinning. Say, Jesus, you said something strange down there. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Do you see how a normal, straightforward reading of the text leads these things to be a reference to the physical temple being destroyed? Then, verses 5 through 13, is basically an outline of the book of Acts. Jesus warns them, first and foremost, about what? False teachers and false messiahs. Acts chapter 5. We read about a man, man named Thutis who rose up and claimed to be someone. Then Judas the Galilean. Acts chapter 8, Simon Magus, same thing. Acts 13, a guy named Bar-Jesus. Acts 21, an unnamed Egyptian who rose up and claimed to be something. False teachers, false messiahs, happens throughout the book of Acts. Second, Military upheaval. In AD 40, AD 40, the emperor Caligula tried to set up a statue of himself in the temple. As you might expect, this led to violent protest in the city of Jerusalem, which led to rumors that the Romans were going to forcefully set up the statue anyway and crush them. In AD 66, the Jewish revolt happens. Third, earthquakes and famines. Acts chapter 11, verse 28. It says, Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. There were three known famines during the reign of Claudius. What happens when Paul and Silas are in prison in the book of Acts? Acts 16. It says they're singing, psalm, they're singing hymns at midnight, and there's a great earthquake. A.D. 61, a huge earthquake hits the region of Phrygia. 
AD 63, another earthquake levels Pompeii. So there's earthquakes and famines all over the place right before the temple's destroyed. How about persecution? Standing before rulers. All in the book of Acts. Jesus told them here on the Mount of Olives that all of this would happen. And it did. But look at what he says at the end of verse 8 in our text. He says, these are but the beginning of birth pains. In other words, when you start seeing all of these things happening, pay attention. But you've got a little bit more time. You parents out there know how this works, right? With our first child, Carson, Shannon went into labor, and, and I was up and dressed and ready to go out the door right then. Uh, that baby was going to be born any minute. But that's not how it works. Shannon knew this. She told me to calm down. She got ready, took a shower, ate some breakfast, and then we slowly drove to the hospital, where we waited almost all day before Carson was born. The beginning of birth pains means that stuff's happening. Get ready. But you've still got some time. Don't be alarmed. That's Jesus' point here. And again, he was right. What I want us to, to avoid us doing is every time an earthquake or a war happens, immediately jumping to, oh, Jesus is coming back. First, I believe Jesus was telling them about the destruction of AD 70. But second, these signs of the times, so to speak, they happen in pretty much every age in history. There's not many years in the past where you could go and the people would say, nope, no wars here. We don't even know of any rumors of wars. But I want us to see the instruction and the encouragement that Jesus gives in this section. First, he gives instruction. He tells them not to be led astray. Then, as always, when, when things get shaken up, it's easy for strong leaders to step up and lead people in the wrong direction. It's easy to follow them in the midst of chaos. Jesus says, don't do it. Keep following Jesus and his word. So he gives instruction. Second, he gives encouragement. He says, don't be alarmed. <laughs> I heard one pastor talk about the different kinds of alarms when you're a kid. The alarm of your parents waking you up versus the alarm of your siblings waking you up. You know what I'm talking about. A parent says, hey, it's time to get up. Let's go get in the car. Or breakfast is ready downstairs. Siblings, on the other hand, the lights get thrown on. Hey, get up! Blankets are being thrown off. Maybe water dumped on their head. Get up! Jesus seems to be more like the parent here. Hey, don't be alarmed. It's time to wake up. Pay attention. Something major is about to happen, but calm down. This is just the beginning. Don't 
Don't be alarmed. Don't let people manipulate your fears. And then, verse 10, he says this. He says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. A couple of truths to see here. Number one, amidst persecution, earthquakes, political upheaval, lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Jesus is telling them to press the gas pedal on evangelism. Chaos happening all around you? Proclaim the gospel to all nations. Keep your hand to the plow. Even though I'm arguing that all this happened by AD 70, isn't that so instructive for us today? We're living in chaotic times. I don't think I need to convince you of that this morning. Santa Cruz Baptist, in the midst of all of that, proclaim the gospel to all nations. That's our call. The second truth in verse 10 is this. That actually happened before the fall of the temple. I know that I'm stepping on a central verse of a lot of missions conferences here. They say things like, we've got to preach the gospel to all nations so that the end can come. That's fine. We should preach the gospel to all nations. Matthew 28 commands us to do that. But Jesus' point here is that before the temple crumbled, the gospel would be preached to the Gentiles, ethnic. Nations, that's the word that's used here. In Jewish thought, there were Jews in one category and all nations in another, which included everyone else. But here's some encouragement that Jesus gives us. Look at verse 11. He says, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. I don't think this is a verse for unprepared pastors who didn't do their work. I think what Jesus is saying to them and to us this morning is this. When stuff's starting to get real and you're being persecuted and you don't know what to say, I've got you. I'll give you a better word than you've got on your own. In times of trial, don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. Proclaim the gospel and know that God's going to show up. All right, let's keep going. Most agree that verses 5 through 13 are about the temple. And that verses 32 through 37, there at the end, are about Jesus' second coming. But verse 14 is really where it starts to be unclear. So I want to suggest something by the way of giving you two different analogies to think about. Uh, The first analogy comes from one of my friends, Matt Felton. Uh, I guess a couple years ago, I'm unfamiliar with this, but I guess there was an app on your phone that would take your picture and then slowly convert it to a celebrity that looked like you in some way, shape, or form. Well, at one point, apparently, it's clearly you, and then there's a transition. It's still you, 
But it's starting to look like the celebrity. And then, bang, it's the celebrity. Okay, well, verses 14 through 31 seem to be a little bit like that. Again, there are elements that that look like the temple in AD 70. And elements that are starting to look a lot like the end times in Jesus' second coming. One seems to be pointing to the other, and it's both. The second analogy comes by way of a guy named Tim Mackey, the Bible Project guy. He lives up in Portland, and he draws this picture of this amazing landscape outside the city of Portland. I think we've got a a picture for you. That's a a fuzzy picture uh, outside of of Portland. So there's... In the the foreground, we've got Mount Tabor, smaller mountain range, along with Rocky Butte, Powell Butte, Mount Scott. Then, behind all of those is the big boy, Mount Hood. So here's the analogy. If you're looking out at it, it's really difficult to comprehend the distance from the mountains in the foreground to Mount Hood. It looks like it might be walkable, right? Looks like maybe you could ride a bike between the hill in the foreground and the big one. But it's actually several hours worth of driving between the two. So the point is this. Jesus seems to be talking about the temple in AD 70 in the foreground, the little mountains, and the one behind it. Behind it, he has his return in mind. So, when you read a text like this, it's really difficult to distinguish the the two, and it's hard to know the distance between the two. That's often how apocalyptic literature works. And Jesus is using Old Testament language throughout. Again, instead of reading our New Testament through the lens of Left Behind or the New York Times, Read through the lens of the Old Testament. This isn't about timelines or speculation. Look at verse 14. With all of that in mind, Jesus says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay. What's Jesus talking about here? First, think mountains behind you. He's referencing Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. Daniel 9, 26 through 27 says this, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Again, in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, it says, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. 
And again, at the end of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, it says, And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So Daniel talks about a figure who would desecrate the temple and stop sacrifices there. According to William Lane, one commentator, it meant an abomination so detestable that it would cause the temple to be abandoned by the people of God and provoke desolation. Think the temple's desolate. Now, let's take Daniel, the book that we just read, and use it as a lens to look at some history. In AD, or sorry, 168 BC, 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, a ruler there, he goes into the temple. He puts up an altar to the pagan god Zeus over the regular altar and sacrificed pigs on it, which for Jewish people were unclean. Sound like Daniel? It does. Most believe that that was at least a partial fulfillment of what Daniel prophesied in 168 B.C. So what's Jesus doing? Look at verse 14 again. He says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He seems to be saying to the disciples, Hey, remember Daniel. Remember that prophecy. Let the reader of Daniel understand. You've seen that partially fulfilled. But when you see something like that happening again, know that stuff's about to go down in the temple. Well, after Jesus said this, leading up to the temple being destroyed, the Roman emperor Caligula planned again to build a statue of himself and set it up on the same altar that Antiochus had defaced. Then, two years before the temple was destroyed, so in the winter of 67 and 68, Jewish zealots took over the temple. They committed various acts of sacrilege, including murder, and installed a literal clown named Fanny as the high priest. They come in. There's all this rampant immorality. They murder someone in the temple and install a clown as a high priest. So Jesus says, guys, this is going to happen. When that happens, when you start to see that happening, flee to the mountains. And that's exactly what Christians did. In AD 70, when Jerusalem fell to the Romans, check this out, 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered in Jerusalem. Most Christians were not among them. Josephus, the Jewish historian again, records Christians as leaving the city as swimmers deserting a sinking ship. Jesus' warning to them here in Mark 13 literally saved their lives. They were on guard as Jesus had commanded them to be. Here are a couple of truths for us to learn here. Number one, Jesus knew what he was talking about. Always. 
What he predicted happened. So, when he promises things that haven't happened yet, we can trust him. He has a perfect track record. Second, he commends sanctified common sense, doesn't he? While he promises us that we will experience suffering as Christians, and that suffering often produces sanctification, note this. He doesn't just tell them, hey, the Romans are going to come in and they're going to absolutely crush you. If you really, really, really trust me, just stay there and pray and twiddle your thumbs and wait for it to happen. No. That's not what he says to them at all. He says, when you see this stuff happening, run for the hills. Use means to provide for your personal safety. Faith in these situations doesn't just chunk common sense out the door, does it? Third, God cares deeply for his people. Look at verse 20. The fall of Jerusalem wasn't this prolonged siege. It was short and quick. God is not unconcerned with the struggles and the sufferings of his people, especially in times of persecution. He isn't just a deistic God who set the world in motion and then stepped out. He's sovereignly in control. Keep going. Look at verses 24 through 27. 24 through 27. He says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So it seems to me that we've been talking about the small mountains in the foreground for a while. But it's here that Jesus may be lifting his eyes to the big mountain off in the distance. While still kind of talking about the temple. Let me show you both sides. Verse 19. Just before this, verse 19, he's talking about the temple. And he said, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Then, here in verse 24, he says, But in those days, after that tribulation, Again, just a straightforward reading would lend itself to understand these verses to be talking about the same time, and that time being A.D. 70. But what about all the sun and moon and stars language that he uses? Well, again, this language can be interpreted literally or figuratively. And I have to pause here to make it clear that by by figurative, I don't mean untrue. Jesus uses figurative language all the time to make a clear point. He says things like, 
I am the door. In John 10, he says, I am the vine. In John 15, I am the bread. In John 6, we don't assume that Jesus is a literal door or a literal vine or bread. But we know exactly what he's saying. It's true, but not literal. He's using known figures to explain the truth of who he is. He may be doing that here. This kind of language was common language for prophets when they're describing God's judgment. Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 through 10 says this. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. You see that? Commenting on this text in Isaiah, R.C. Sproul says this. He says, This passage, part of a proclamation of judgment on Babylon, is typical of Old Testament prophecies of doom. Such passages often include references to astronomical upheavals. It is a principle of biblical interpretation that when the Bible consistently uses a given type of language in a given context, whenever we see that language, we should look for that context. Do you see what he's saying? His point is that that Jesus is using prophetic language of judgment and doom in Mark 13. We should catch that and realize that he's speaking of judgment upon Israel. And the temple. Or there may be reason to believe that Jesus is speaking very literally and still talking about the temple. Immediately after the fall of the temple, there were reports of crazy astronomical things happening, including a comet that everyone saw. Again, Josephus notes this. He says a few days after the feast, on the one and twentieth day of the month Artemisus, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable, were it not related by those that saw it, and were not the events that followed it of so considerable of a nature as to deserve such signals. For before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding the cities. Seems crazy, right? They saw chariots in the sky? But this happened in the Old Testament. Uh, Elisha was up against horses and chariots and soldiers. And look at 2 Kings verse, or chapter 6, verse 17. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. It says, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So, it's 
possible that Jesus either figuratively or literally was describing the events surrounding the fall of the temple. But, to argue for the other side, this language also sounds a lot like what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, which is clearly about the second coming of Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So, is Jesus in Mark 13 talking about the temple? Or is he talking about the second coming? Yes. I think he's talking about both. And I don't think the principle changes. Look closely at verse 26. It says this. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus. Where does this language come from? Again, Daniel, which seems like he's been quoting Daniel all along here. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is, is significant. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, meaning God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, meaning the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So let me ask you this. If you've just witnessed the temple get absolutely obliterated, you've seen a million people slaughtered in Jerusalem, what do you need to be reminded of? That God is still on the throne. And that Jesus has all authority. That's what Daniel chapter 7 is all about. That's why the vision was so encouraging to Daniel himself. When chaos is going on all around you, God hasn't lost control. He's still enthroned. That's what these believers would need to know in AD 70 when it rolled around. Also, that'll still be true at his second coming. He'll come in power and glory. And he'll still have all authority. It's true for the foreground mountains and for the big one. But what about verse 27? Verse 27 says, And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. It's important to know that the word angels here can and often is translated 
messengers. So the thrust here would be this. When it seems like the world's collapsing, the gospel will still be proclaimed and going forth to the ends of the world. Once again, he's saying, don't let off the gas pedal of evangelism. Even in the midst of chaos. All right. Very quickly, and with the time we have left, verses 32 through 37. These seem to kind of shift the focus completely onto the big mountain. The second coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 32. But concerning that day, there's the word. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, Stay awake. I'm going to try and be very quick and concise here. If you, if you knew that Jesus was coming back soon, let's say next week, what would you do with the time you had left? In Thessalonica, many people simply quit working and just waited thinking that their, their work was too unspiritual for them to do. That's why Paul admonishes them in 2 Thessalonians 3, to stop being idle and do your work. Jesus' words to us here in our text seem pretty clear. Number one, he's coming back. Number two, no one knows when. Third, Stay awake and do your work faithfully as his servants. Faithful Christians should live every day like he's coming back tomorrow. And as if it may be centuries. I'm afraid that for far too long, the church has been asleep at the wheel here. Comfortable. Not engaged in the work of the mission. Living kind of like the masters, just an absent landlord. Church, don't be asleep. Be on guard. Stay awake. He's coming back both in redemption and in judgment. The Son of Man will come with all dominion and all authority and all glory and all power. Of that, you can be certain that his words will not pass away. Let's pray.